or before we begin. Lord, we thank you again for your word and for the, the wonderful place that it has in our lives and pray that it would have a greater place day by day, that we would know that it is your word without doubt, that you have inspired the readers, the writers, and, um, and Lord, that it speaks to us even today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Dylan, can I have my slide up, please, mate? Humanity has been in the business of tower building for a long time. There we go. And I want to run through the top five tallest buildings or towers in the world at the current time. This one is called the Lot Tower in Seoul, South Korea. It's 555 metres tall. Pipped only just by 0.1 of a metre by the Ping An Finance Centre in Shenzhen, China. I think that's how you say it. 555.1 metres tall. This one is in Mecca. It's the, I don't know how to say it, clock tower. Um, I think it's Abraj Albayat, something like that. It is 581.1 metres tall. It's an impressive piece of engineering, isn't it? This is the Shanghai Tower in Shanghai. It's 632 metres tall. And this is the tallest building in the world at the moment. The Burj Khalifa in Dubai. 830 metres tall. But there's, there's one in the pipeline called the Jeddah Tower and it's to be built in Dubai as well and it's set to be over a thousand metres tall. They were going to make it over a mile high but the ground simply could not support that sort of building. It's projected to be completed in the year 2020. A pretty amazing sort of um, engineering and architectural feats, aren't they? And we come to the last in our series of, of our Genesis series, Origins. And time and time again we've seen from Genesis chapter 3, three things. We've seen human arrogance in the fact that they think they can just take God out of the picture or reach God on their own abilities. And then we've seen heaven's awareness or God's awareness of that and, of course, heaven's action or reversal. So I want to just have a, a quick run through and, and have a look at the, the human arrogance that is in these verses, the first four verses here. There's a number of things that suggest rebellion, m- movement away from God and arrogance above all else. Migration from the east is the first thing that signifies rebellion. You can see that in verse verse 1. No, verse 2. And as the people migrated from the east, remember with our series through the tabernacle that when the priests entered into the presence of God, into the tabernacle, they came from the east 
towards the west. Do you remember this? So there's a symbolism in there that that moving towards the west is moving back into God's presence. Whereas the opposite is also true, that, that migrating from the east towards the east is away from God. There's another thing that tells us about the, the human arrogance. The people settled on the plain of Shinar in direct opposition or defiance to God's command to fill the earth and populate it in verses, uh, Genesis, 9, Genesis 9 verse 1. And so Genesis, is, Genesis 11 is inviting us to reflect on the meaning of human community human achievement, but also human pride from the the vantage point of God's purposes for human well-being and God's judgment on yet another human attempt to cross from man's place to God's place. The people of, of Babel discovered how to make bricks and bake them in the sun, and they used bitumen for mortar, These things are in contrast to what Israel later used with stone and mortar. Baked bricks and and bitumen are destined for decay, unlike the stone and mortar that the Israelites later use. And in verse 4 we hear these heartbreaking words. They said... Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. It's those words, let us make a name for ourselves, that is in direct opposition to what God wants. The tower builders are in direct defiance to what God had called them to do, And they were driven by a need to make their own name great or make a name for themselves. They want to build their own little empire apart from God, keep God directly out of it. They were empire builders and not subjects of the kingdom of God. And we think as humans that we can make our own name great sometimes too, can't we? We think that, that through our work or our legacy or, or the clothes I wear, I shouldn't have dressed up so much this morning, that we can make our name great, that we can be the, the name that is on the lips of, of people. We crave to have our name up in lights. And this motivation drives all of us to some degree. It drives politicians, it drives preachers, it drives athletes alike. They want to be the greatest. What's the first question you ask someone when, they, when you meet them at a, at a barbecue or a, or a dinner party? You say, hi, my name's Dale Buchanan, and they introduce themselves as well. And you say, what do you do for work? Don't you? Unless you're retired, of course. Retired people work, they do. But we ask this question not because we're, we're really interested in what they do, 
but more so that we're hoping that they'll ask that in return, don't we? Because we want to be, we want to be telling them what we do. We want to be, you know, saying how good we are at what we do. Unless you're a pastor, because it's usually a conversation killer. <laughs> oh, you're a pastor. Okay. But we desperately want to be known as someone who is the best at something. We want to be known as the best engineer or the best hairdresser or the best preacher. We have this inbuilt desire to be known as someone who is great. And this is what the people of the Tower of Babel wanted to do. They wanted to make themselves great. They wanted to make a name for themselves. But deeper than that, they wanted to remove God out of the picture altogether. They thought, if we can just make a tower big enough, we can take God's place. The people will come and worship us and see what we've done and and our name will be great. Can you see the arrogance there? I think it's... It's something that we all struggle with. I think it's arrogant of us as Christians to try and make a name for ourselves as well. Or in modern terms, to accumulate fame and fortune aside from that which God has given us. You see, when we, when we try and make a name great, when we work in order to try and save ourselves... We're removing God out of the picture. We think that if we can become the world's greatest CEO or sell a best-selling novel, write a best-selling novel or sell a business for $100 million or even get millions of followers on Instagram or, or build the world's tallest tower, then we'll be able to mask our sinful condition. Then we'll be able to save ourselves. Then we'll be able to glory rob God. That's what we're doing, folks. Trying to make our name great is glory robbing God. And again, we're engaging in empire building, building ourselves a little empire rather than submitting to God's kingdom, rather than building God's kingdom. See, the motivations behind our work or our ambition or our creativity matter greatly to God. And as Christians, it's important to have, us, have a sense of identity rooted firmly in Christ, not in what we do. It's important to have a sense of identity rooted firmly in Christ and what he has done for us not what we can do for ourselves. Don't hear me saying that that it's, it's wrong of us to have ambition because it's perfectly fine to have ambition and to to desire to do the best that we can do. But when it becomes a ruling factor in our lives, it's, it's a problem. When our ambition exceeds itself, becomes arrogance. 
Next we reach the um, pivotal verse in our chapter, in this, in this passage. Verse 5, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Heaven's awareness of the situation, the scene switches from earth to heaven. The tower was in the heavens, or the clouds, where where the people thought that, that God dwelt. They wanted to reach heaven and and remove God out of the picture, obtain status like God. But what their puny little minds didn't think is that this is God who made the entire earth. This is God who dwells across the face of the earth. This is God who flung the stars into, into position with a simple thrust of his hand. This is God who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, as Isaiah describes him. It's almost satirical that God had to come down and see what the men were doing. To see what the men of the city were doing. When God dwells everywhere and he sees everything and he knows everything, the reason that he had to come down, so to speak, is because it was so puny. It was so small. He had to get down and take a closer look. It would be like me walking out from here this afternoon and, and seeing an ant on the floor and yet getting down closer to have a closer look to see what they were doing. And it's as if God got down on his hands and knees and had a closer look at what they were doing. And I wonder whether he just laughed and laughed and laughed. Psalm Psalm chapter 2, 1 and 4 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. I wonder if he just filled heaven with laughter and just went, they're doing it again. Silly people. But in another sense, you can kind of hear that the way God is is almost grieved to the heart. Similar to what he was in Genesis chapter 6, when he saw the wickedness of man and, and he was grieved to the heart. God was concerned for the condition of the people. And he didn't want them to remain in their current state, defying God putting God out of the picture, trying to to replace God, trying to obtain status like God in in their current state. So next we see heaven's reversal and heaven's action. Verse 6 says, The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. It's not as if God was threatened by their feeble attempt at tower building. 
He wasn't saying, oh no, what shall I do? But he was troubled by what would happen to humanity if they continued on their current trajectory. If he left them in their current condition, there was no stopping them of what they would do. They would build up a delusion of being able to save themselves through tower building. They would build up a delusion of of saving themselves through false religion, through security and community and, and political uniformity. They would throw off God completely as the idea of creator, redeemer and lord. And their hearts would become so hard towards him that they would never turn to him if he hadn't have acted. These are all hypotheticals, but do you see that if they continued on their current trajectory, if God didn't act, they were just going to go further and further away from God. And so God acted. God acted and confused their language and dispersed them from that place. He confused their language as a form of judgment, of of spreading them out across the face of the earth. But there's also grace and mercy involved in this, hey? God could have just completely wiped them out there and then, as he had done in in the flood. But the significance of this event is, is that it's so important. God didn't do that. The Tower of Babel and the future kingdom of Babylon is the embodiment of everything that is contrary or everything that tries to deny God. And God didn't wipe them out because he would use them again in a final he would use them again as a, as a form of judgment on Israel. The significance of this is that there would be a final reversal of the scattering and the language confusion that we see here. Zephaniah 3 verse 9 says, For at that time I will change the speech of a peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Zephaniah was prophesying that there would be a day when, when God would act to reverse the effects of the Tower of Babel, to not confuse language but to bring them back into one language, to not disperse people but to bring them back And the day that Zephaniah speaks of is Acts chapter 2. And it might be easier for you to flick over to Acts chapter 2 rather than read it from there. In Acts chapter 2, we see that the disciples were all in one place together after the day of resurrection. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were, dwe- now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this, at this sound the multitude came together and they were be- bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Do you see that? Do you see the reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel in that God was bringing people back together through language, bringing them back in towards his kingdom rather than their own empires? And God was doing this through Jesus. He'd reversed the human arrogance Through Jesus' death and resurrection, God had made clear the way that people were to be saved, not by their own doing, but simply through faith in Jesus Christ. He was reversing the confusion of language and, and drawing people from all nations to himself and initiating his kingdom rule on this earth. I found this interesting fact that in September 2016, as of September 2016, the full Bible has been translated into 636 languages. That's Old Testament, New Testament, Genesis to Revelation. The New Testament alone into 1,442 languages. That's pretty... (laughs) That's pretty interesting. I'm glad you're listening, Elias. It's pretty interesting. It's an amazing, amazing feat of, of languages. And yet there's an incredible amount of, of way to go when we consider that there are nearly 7,000 living languages across the face of the earth. But yet there's something that we have to look forward to. The day when Jesus returns, when when all language will be null and void, it will only be God's language that we speak, when we are able to to stand before him with a great multitude that no one could number. Revelation 7 verse 9, David hinted at it earlier. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Wouldn't that be a marvellous day? something that we need to be reminded of folks is that we need to be not empire builders but kingdom builders we need to be mindful of of where our motivation lies when it comes to work and creativity and there's a difference between people that are empire builders and kingdom builders kingdom that I speak of is the kingdom of God 
Empire builders hold on to hurts from the past and they don't move forward and forgive easily, whereas kingdom builders forgive and move on. Empire builders are hurt when they don't receive the recognition that they think they deserve. Kingdom builders are more than happy for God to get all the glory. Empire builders exaggerate what God is doing in and through their lives, whereas kingdom builders speak about what God is doing in and through the lives of others. In order to seem great, empire builders will try and tear down anyone who's seen as a rival to their empire, whereas kingdom builders raise up others for the sake of the kingdom. Empire builders inwardly rejoice when they hear of others struggling. Kingdom builders will try and restore people who are struggling for the sake of the kingdom. Empire builders complain about what the leadership is not doing, whereas kingdom builders don't complain and instead they get in and do what needs to be done. Empire builders will only cooperate with someone if there is something to gain. Kingdom builders will cooperate with anyone, even if it means that they have nothing to gain. Empire builders are driven by themselves, whereas kingdom builders are driven by the Spirit, led by the Spirit. Empire builders are jealous when others succeed, whereas kingdom builders rejoice when others succeed. The question I leave you with this morning is, are you an empire builder? Or are you a kingdom builder? We're going to come around the communion table in a minute where we're reminded of the fact that God initiated his kingdom through the sacrifice of Jesus, through the willing sacrifice of Jesus, where he was willing to lay down his life for the sake of those who had human arrogance above all else in order to bring back a people to himself of of nations and languages. We're reminded of the fact that Jesus died on the cross through the shedding of his blood and the breaking of his body. And he gives us these challenging words. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus says to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Denying yourself means laying down your empire and being focused on God's kingdom. As we come around this table... These symbols of of Jesus' body and his blood give us an indication of the, the enormity of this sacrifice. Even though this bread is a, a small piece of bread and this cup a small cup of juice, 
Jesus' body was broken. His blood was shed for your sake in order for you to to stop focusing on your own empire, to be a part of God's kingdom. And it's a day-by-day just drawing back to God. It's a day-by-day focusing on his kingdom rather than our own empires. As we take of this bread and, and drink of this cup, I ask that you would hold on to the cup and we'll drink together as a, as a sense of uniformity. But also, if, if there is anything that you need to come before God with, do it now. Lay down your empire. Submit to his kingdom and his rule in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the the message of the Tower of Babel. We admit that there are times when we are arrogant, where we try and save ourselves, where we try and be a people who make our own name great rather than submitting to your name, the name above all names. Lord, we thank you for Jesus and and the fact that you are bringing peoples of, of every tribe, of every nation, back to yourself through him. Now, Lord, as we are reminded of this, this costly sacrifice, may we count the cost of, of taking up the cross and following you daily. May we count the cost of of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. May we be a people that lay down our own empires and and proclaim the goodness of the kingdom of God. Lord, I pray that as, as we take of these emblems, that we would be reminded of the, the cost that Jesus paid in order to bring us back to you. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.